In the more than 230 years since George Washington was sworn in as the first president of the United States, 43 other Americans have joined Washington in what some call the President's Club. Like any club, its members have represented a variety of backgrounds, philosophies, and talents. Some met with success, others with failure. Some are enshrined in America's collective memory, while others have been largely forgotten by history. And, like any other club, some of its members became friends, others became enemies, and some patched up their differences years after their service in the White House concluded. America's 37th president, Richard Nixon, once said, once you get into this great stream of history, you can't get out. This podcast examines several of the historic relationships that developed between members of the President's Club as they found themselves in the great stream of history. You are listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Allie Fitzgerald-Smith. This podcast is brought to you by the Richard Nixon Foundation. We are broadcasting from the Charlie Zhang Studio at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. This week, we are beginning an all-new six-part series called The President's Club, which parallels an all-new special exhibit at the Nixon Library. Joining us on this journey is the curator and author of the exhibit, Bob Bostock. Bob, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Sally. It's great to be with you. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this exhibit? I'd be happy to. I um, actually had the honor and pleasure of working on much of the exhibit text covering the Nixon presidency when the library opened back in 1990, working directly with President Nixon in his offices in New Jersey. And in the years since, I've worked on a number of exhibits, uh, most recently, obviously, the President's Club. But uh, earlier, I was the curator and author of Mrs. Nixon's Centennial Exhibit in 2012 and worked with Frank Gannon as co-curator and co-author of President Nixon's Centennial Exhibit in 2013. So I'm really excited to have had the opportunity to work on this exhibit, which examines relationships between several presidents of the United States going all the way back to the earliest days of our republic. Wow, that's incredible. So you actually worked with and met with President Nixon. I did. I worked with him over the course of the last five years of his life. Um, I helped out with uh, two of his books uh, as a research assistant, basically, and uh, as I said, worked on a bunch of the uh, exhibit texts for the library when it opened. Uh, Basically, I wrote almost everything covering his presidency, starting with the 68 campaign through to and including the original Watergate exhibit, and then did various research tasks for him and and writing of letters and, and things like that over the course of that period. Great. Well, this is definitely an exciting and interesting exhibit. Um, This exhibit starts with the relationship between Adams and Jefferson. Can you tell us why you decided to start there other than them being chronologically first? Well, I think the fact that they were chronologically first is a big part of the reason, but also because the two of them had such a fascinating relationship. Uh, One historian, Joseph Ellis, has called them the odd couple of because the two men worked very closely together in the Second Continental Congress, which, of course, is the Congress that declared our independence on July 4th, 1776, got to be really good friends while serving in Congress together and actually worked together on the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson, of course, gets most of the credit for writing the Declaration, and he deserves it because he was the primary drafter. But the Congress had actually appointed five members of the Congress to serve on a committee to draft the Declaration, And Adams was one of the other members of that committee. And he probably worked the closest with Jefferson in drafting the declaration. But the two men were of such different temperaments. Adams was 
a New Englander from Massachusetts. He was very brash. He was impatient. Uh, he was a very practical man, uh, eager to get things done and, and anxious to get things done. Jefferson, on the other hand, from Virginia, was um, a, a Renaissance man in every way, shape, and form, a very cerebral, had a romantic streak to him, uh, and much more reflective of kind of the pace of life that went on in the South of being a Virginian as, as Jefferson won. So as Jefferson was. So they were two very different men in temperament, but they were united by their desire to uh, gain American independence from Great Britain. So in these years when they worked on the Continental Congress together, were they contemporaries? Were they adversaries? Were they friends? They were definitely friends. Um, Adams was seven years older than Jefferson. Uh, so they were roughly contemporaries, but they, they were definitely friends. They both shared that vision from the time they came to Congress and met in 1775 of an independent United States. Adams, of course, was very uh, eager for that to happen. The Battle of Lexington and Concord had happened in April of 1775, uh, right in Massachusetts, uh, in, in Adams's home state, not far from his home. And uh, he was he was eager to get on with the business of declaring independence. Jefferson also uh, felt that uh, independence was very important, that the time was ripening for it. Uh, but he had a different approach to uh, to convincing the Congress that it was time to do that. But they were definitely friends. They they shared not just a, a political relationship as members of Congress, but also a real friendship. Okay, and then they go on to serve on the Washington administration together. Is that correct? Yes, they did. But before the, before they did that, interestingly, they spent time together in Paris. Um, after the end of the revolution, after the, the close of the revolution, they were sent along with Ben Franklin to Paris to negotiate agreements with a bunch of the European countries for trade and friendly relations. So they were together in Paris, Adams, Jefferson, Franklin, uh, together for about a year in Paris, and they became even closer. And Abigail Adams was was with John Adams, Adams's uh, wife, of course, uh, at that time, and she really helped nurture uh, an even closer relationship between the two men uh, during the time they were in Paris. It only lasted a year because Adams was named the first American ambassador to what they call the Court of St. James, which is basically the ambassador to the United Kingdom to Great Britain. Uh, so he left for London uh, only after spending less than a year in Paris. Uh, but they maintained their relationship, even though they were separated by the English Channel. The two of them definitely maintained a very close relationship through correspondence and, and uh, things of that nature during that period. But then they went, as you asked, we went along and both served in the Washington administration. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 created the office of the presidency. Uh, Washington was the first president, the only president ever elected unanimously in the Electoral College. Adams was the vice president of the United States, and Jefferson was named by Washington to be the first American secretary of state. So they both served together in the Washington administration. Um, but at that point, as their, their vision of the future of the country started to differ, they, their relationship became more adversarial than, than friendly over that period. During the Washington administration? During the Washington administration, yes. And then it, it kind of culminated when Washington decided to uh, retire from the presidency after serving two full terms. 
Uh, Adams was considered, particularly by himself, to be the heir apparent to Washington, having served as vice president. Right. During the Washington presidency, political parties had started to form, and Adams had formed, uh, had really become affiliated with what was known as the Federalist Party, which Alexander Hamilton had a huge role in starting. And it supported a, a more powerful central government um, in, in Washington, a more powerful federal government. Jefferson became affiliated with what was known then as the Democratic Republican Party, uh, which was definitely uh, more oriented towards a less powerful central government and more power in the states. And they both had a different view of how the country should grow. Uh, Jefferson was very much in favor of the country becoming an agrarian uh, country uh, where, where most of its uh, most of the economy was driven by farming and things of those nature, where Adams had a broader view, along with Hamilton, of, of seeing the country become more industrialized and more you know, business-like in the future. So as, as they served together and then um, their parties started to grow, they, they definitely grew apart. And then, of course, as I mentioned in that election of 1796, Adams and Jefferson both ran for the presidency. Okay. Um, Adams was only elected by a majority in the Electoral College of one vote. But wow. interestingly, yeah, it's very close. But interestingly, you know, we think today the Electoral College has its problems. Interestingly, the way it was originally created, it was even more difficult because whoever came in second then became the vice president of the United States. So Adams was elected president. Jefferson was elected vice president. Adams approached Jefferson and said, let's form a bipartisan administration. Jefferson didn't want any part of it. He wanted to remain aligned with his party and refused. So even though Jefferson was Adams vice president, Jefferson worked in opposition to Adams during Adams' entire first term. Wow. So he's the vice um, president and he's his longtime friend and they're still in opposition to one another. And they become in opposition. Yeah. Because of, again, their differing views on how the country should grow, what the role of the federal government should be. They also uh, really disagreed about the effects of the French Revolution. Jefferson was uh, much more favorably inclined to the French Revolution, even in all of the turmoil that created in France. Adams, who uh, was much more of an institutionalist, I guess you would call him, was kind of a, was appalled, really, by the excesses of the Revolution. But you tell have me... remember, uh, we have to remember Jefferson was the person who said the tree of liberty should be repressed from time to time with the blood of tyrants and patriots. So he would be more inclined to see the French Revolution in a different light than what uh, Adams saw it in. Uh, at this time, what did the vice presidency look like if he was able to be in opposition to you know, the sitting U.S. president? What was his role as vice president at that time? Well, it's interesting. The role of the vice president um, in the, in the, for, for very long, for more than the first 100 and almost 150 years of the republic was uh, very limited. The Constitution only gave the vice president duty of presiding over the Senate and breaking uh, a tie vote in the Senate. He can cast a vote to break a tie if the, if the Senate is tied. Those are the only defined roles of the vice presidency in the Constitution. And Adams, when he was vice president, once said, you know, today I am nothing, tomorrow I could be anything. In other words, if Washington had died while in office, Adams would have become the president. But as vice president, he really had nothing other than preside over the Senate and break a tie. They had no official duties. 
So Jefferson, um, you know, having no real formal role except for the one I just described, was free to uh, work in the Congress in opposition to things that Adams was doing. Uh, he opposed uh, important parts of Adams' legislative agenda and really worked to build his own political party up uh, in opposition to uh, to Adams. It's the only time in American history that the president and the vice president came from two opposition political parties. Uh, the, the, the situation was so bad that in 1804, the Constitution was amended so that no longer would you have the possibility of that happening. The Electoral Congress was changed, or I'm sorry, the Electoral College was changed so that uh, you would vote for a ticket as opposed to just vote for two people who could end up being from opposition parties. So then we move forward in time to the election of 1800. And essentially this whole time, Jefferson has been uh, biding his time for this election, it sounds like. Yeah, not just biding his time, but really getting ready to run. You know, we talked today about how long the campaigns go on, but in a very real sense, Jefferson uh, was running for four years for the presidency in 1800 because of his active opposition uh, and behind the scenes opposition to Adams. So the two of them uh, again ran against each other in 1800. This time, uh, Jefferson received a majority of the electoral vote, but but so did the person he was running with as vice president, Aaron Burr. They both received the exact same amount of votes, so neither one had a had a majority by themselves. So the election, so Adams, you know, clearly lost the election, but the election, uh, because of the tie between Jefferson and Burr, ended up in the House of Representatives, and it actually took 35 ballots before the House decided that Jefferson would be the president and um, and Burr would be the vice president. And in fact, uh, 35 ballots, and then on the 36th ballot was when the, when after a lot of behind the scenes machinations, including with Hamilton interfering and everything else, um, Jefferson is, is elected president. Um, on February 17th of uh, 1801, which was less than three weeks before he was uh, scheduled to be inaugurated as the third president of the United States. So talk about a short transition, um, a lengthy uh, you know, election that was kind of up in the air for literally months, and uh, then having, to, having less than three weeks to prepare to become president. Wow. It was a very, very, it is still considered to be one of the most divisive and bitter um, elections in American history. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what was campaigning like in that time period? How did, how did you run for president then? Well, you didn't really run for president in the way that we do today. Um, presidential candidates didn't really start campaigning uh, until the end of the 19th century, you know, a hundred years later. Um, their supporters would uh, campaign, so to speak, and campaigning was really talking to um, people in their communities and deciding who the electors were. Uh, the Electoral College, as originally conceived, was that each state would choose uh, men, because only men had the vote back then, to uh, gather together in Washington and cast their votes for president. So while popular vote was taken, it wasn't uh, necessarily defining, although it, it usually played out along those lines. But campaigning was nothing at all like it is today. Uh, the candidates did not campaign. They left it to their supporters to 
seek support from the folks who would choose the electors and 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 uh, support from the electors, members of the electoral college. Totally different. Um, I, I can only imagine if if uh, if candidates from that time were able to uh, get in a time machine and see the way elections are conducted today, they, they would be completely shocked and overwhelmed. It would it would uh, undoubtedly um, they would undoubtedly find it. Uh, I, I think they would find it appalling, yeah, because back then it was considered to be rather crass, actually, to actively campaign for yourself. They'd, they'd be amazed at how we do it today. So were there, was there any form of, I guess, a stump speech back then? Anything like that? No, nothing like that at all. Like I said, the candidates did not campaign. They left it wow. to their supporters. And it was much more because the country was small. You know, you had, you had newspapers, but right. newspapers were not... Uh, they were they were usually very uh, not even regional. They were usually very specific to the town they were in or the city they were in. Um, no mass media, obviously. So the elections were carried on a lot of word of mouth, a lot of letter writing. Newspapers were openly partisan back then, and cities mm-hmm. had many many newspapers. Not like today, where a major city like Washington has one essentially newspaper. Uh, New York has one major newspaper and a couple others that are nowhere near as, as big as the New York Times is, you know, back then there were, a town could have half a dozen or a dozen newspapers and they were, and they were all openly partisan. They made no secret of their partisanship. They made no pretense of being uh, nonpartisan or independent or non-political. So that's, that's kind of how campaigning took place back, back 220 years ago. And, and like I said, all the way up until uh, the end, pretty much the end of the 19th century. How about um, inaugurations? What did those look like? Was Adams at Jefferson's inauguration? Well, Adams was so bitter at what happened that on the day of the of Jefferson's inauguration on March 4th, 1801, Adams left the White House and he had only moved into the White House in November of uh, 1800. So he hadn't even spent, you know, six months in the White House, and it wasn't even finished when he and Mrs. Adams moved in. That story is told that the East Room was so unfinished that Abigail Adams hung the laundry out to dry in the East Room. Wow. So he wasn't even in the he wasn't even in the White House for six months. And on the morning of Jefferson's inauguration, he left town before sunrise and did not attend Jefferson's inauguration. He was so bitter at the uh, the tone of the campaign, the charges that were levied against him. And I think personally bitter that a man he had considered to be his friend um, had had waged the sort of not just campaign during 1800, but the, the efforts he had during Adams' entire administration to undermine the work that Adams was doing. So, yeah, he left town and he's the only, I think, uh, incumbent president who was still alive when his successor was being sworn in, who did not attend his successor's inauguration. It, there was a lot of bad blood. They were very close friends, but when that friendship dissolved, there was a lot of bad blood between the two of them. Yeah, so it sounds like they were they had been close before in the early days of the of the country, and then maybe it's about seven years now they've been at odds with each other. If they were at odds throughout his entire first term, um, his only yeah. term, and cool. towards the end of the Washington administration, so. So it's been brewing for a while when uh, when Adams leaves town. Yeah, I would say probably for at least a decade, really. It yeah. was interesting because before 
uh, before the Constitution was adopted and the country was living under the Articles of Confederation. Um, and, and they were working together both in the Continental Congress and then uh, overseas and in Paris to, 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 as ambassadors, really, for the United States to try and pull together some trade agreements with, with European countries. They had a very warm friendship. But when and this often happens, you know, when, when the Constitution is passed and the nature of the, of the national government completely changes to being very, very weak under the Articles of Confederation to much stronger under the Constitution, and which means much more power uh, for the person who uh, would become president. Uh, power uh, can do strange things to people, and the pursuit of power can do strange things to people as well. And we certainly see that uh, in the Adams and Jefferson relationship. Uh, a very close, warm relationship completely falls apart um, as they both not only seek power, but seek to uh, guide the direction that this new country, the, Union, the new United States, was going to take in the, in the years ahead. So during the Jefferson presidency, do they ever warm up to each other? Does Adams ever attempt to serve as counsel, or is it completely ice cold? Totally ice cold, and not during Jefferson's entire two terms, his eight years in the White House, but for years after that. And it wasn't until uh, 1811 that a mutual friend of theirs from the Continental Congress, they had served together with a man named Benjamin Rush, and he had been a friend of both Adams and Jefferson. And, you know, as people get older, they tend to kind of look back and and you know maybe have some regrets about some of how their relationships might have might have turned out. So Rush was really, really, really not happy that these two men who had been so influential at the beginning of the country and had both served as president of the United States were completely on non-speaking terms. I mean, they literally did not exchange a word um, for 11 years. So Rush and you know the way he did this, it kind of reminds me. You know, in high school, when somebody would try and play matchmaker and they'd tell somebody, oh, you know, so-and-so really likes you. And then they'd tell the other person, oh, this person really likes you. And then they would get them together. So Rush wrote to both men and said, wrote to Jefferson and said, you know, Adams would really like to, to start exchanging letters with you. And he wrote to Adams and said, you know, I hear Jefferson really hopes to rekindle your relationship. So Rush is playing kind of matchmaker in a way that would be familiar to most high school students. <laughs> and um, and Adams is the one who writes the first letter on New Year's Day in 1812. He writes to, to Jefferson, and the two of them uh, strike up a, a correspondence that uh, endured for 14 years, really, until they both uh, until they both died. And it's fascinating reading the letters that they exchanged over that period of time. Um, is is really interesting, and to see how they repaired their relationship through correspondence, you know, today, I guess we would do it through email or, or tweets or something like that. But, you know, they did longhand letters that took weeks to get from Massachusetts, the 500 miles down to Charlottesville, down to Monticello where Jefferson was. So things took time, you know, and uh, each person took time in writing the letter because, you know, there, there's no going back, you know, once <laughs> before you put pen to paper, you had to be sure you knew what you were going to write. But through those letters, they rekindled their relationship. And, as the years went by, they, they resumed kind of the friendship that they had had um, in the early part of their of their careers. So was it a dozen letters? Was it 
dozens and dozens? No, many letters, many letters. I haven't counted them, but there are many letters, um, you know, dozens of letters between okay. the two of them. And, they're, and they talk about, you know, what's going on in the country. Um, they were both very, very familiar with uh, the classics. So you, you see a lot of references to uh, classical literature and Roman history and Greek history and figures in that period and and uh, that sort of thing and and uh, and just a lot of uh, musings about where the country is going and uh, what they think the future of the country is going to hold and uh, those sorts of things. These were two giants, really, of their age, who you know were in the the last years of their lives, the last decade, a little longer than a decade of their lives. Um, just kind of reflecting on what they had done together, thinking about how whether the country they had helped to create would endure, what would become of it, and uh, just kind of sharing their thoughts as as two people who had really played such a an enormous role in the history of of their country, and who would be. I think they had a sense, although they didn't necessarily say so explicitly, that they would be remembered long after they were both gone. So there's this a certain philosophical strain in their letters as well. They're, they're not the kind of letters you would expect to, to read today, you know, where there was, you know, some gossip in them, of course, because, you know, everybody likes to gossip a little bit about somebody they heard about this one or that one. But for the most part, they, they have a very, I think, kind of philosophical uh, tone as, um, as men who are nearing the end of their lives and know that they are and uh, are thinking about what they did together. Um, at the very founding of the country. And in the exhibit, do we have um, some of that text available for, for visitors? We do. We have some reproduction of, of the letters, and some of the letters are quoted. And uh, you'll be able to see, uh, you know, their, their penmanship. We have on, on one of the walls, giant blow-up of, of, of two of the, one of Jefferson's letters and one of Adam's letters that people will be able to see. And, uh, you know, we'll have some quill pens so people can see kind of what they were writing with. Certainly, you know, not not the pens we have today. They were writing with quills from birds, you know. <laughs> they had to dip into a little pot of ink as they wrote each each word and each letter uh, together. So you'll definitely see some of that. I should also have mentioned earlier that uh, we also will have, uh, which we've acquired from Monticello, a reproduction of the desk on which Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. And people will be surprised to see that it's, it's really small. It's something that you could carry with you as you went from place to place and maybe set it on a table and use it as a desk. I, I like to think of it as kind of the laptop of a day. So we'll have on display a, re, a, a reproduction from Monticello of that desk on which the immortal words of the Declaration were penned. So, um, of course, the original letters are all uh, held um, very under very close security, um, but the letters themselves, the text and the letters are online. If anyone wanted to read some of the letters, all you have to do is search for Jefferson Adams letter in Google, and you'll find links where their entire correspondence is, is online, which is uh, a great thing. And it's just kind of very interesting, a lot of fun for uh, history buffs and people who want to learn more about that period of history to go online and read those letters. They're very, very interesting. You mentioned the correspondence continues up until very near to their to the time they died. Can you tell us a little bit about their last letters? Sure. Uh, it was very interesting. As you look at their, their last letters, the um, Jefferson in February of 1825 
little over a year um, before they um, wrote, uh, before they both died, rather. He wrote in a letter to Adams, who at that point was 89 years old and in really poor health. Jefferson wrote, the little strength of mind and the considerable strength of body that I once possessed appear to be all gone. But while I breathe, I shall be your friend. Um, those are among the last words that Jefferson wrote to Adams. And in Adams's last letter to Jefferson, Adams closed the letter by saying, my love to all your family and the best wishes for your health. But of course, the two were in declining health. Uh, Adams was 90 years old when he died, Jefferson 83. And in one of the enormously cool kind of providential moments in American history, both men died on July 4th, 1826, which was the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And they had become so close through their letters in those that final 14 years of their lives that as Adams lay on his deathbed at his home in uh, Massachusetts, his last words were said to be, Thomas Jefferson still survives. But what Adams didn't know is that Jefferson had actually died five hours earlier down at Monticello in Charlottesville, outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. And Jefferson was so conscious of the fact that the anniversary of the, the 4th of July was coming up that for the last couple of days of his life, when he was kind of going in and out of consciousness, he kept asking the people who were around him, is it the 4th? Is it the 4th? He almost willed himself to live until the 50th anniversary of the Declaration. And then when the 4th had arrived, he peacefully died in his bed at Monticello. So the fact that these two men who together uh, served in the Continental Congress, served as ambassadors overseas for the new United States, uh, both served in the presidency, battled ferociously uh, during the, that period when they were both you know, vice president and then president, and then reconciled in their later years that both should should pass on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's one of those rare moments in history that just, if you had written that in a in a script, I don't think it would have gotten through the editing process. People would have said, this is impossible, but it wasn't impossible. It actually happened. And uh, I, I think it's just a, put such a neat um, coda on the end of the lives of those two giants in our history. Yes, definitely incredible. Providential, I think, is the is the right word. Um, this is an incredible story of a complicated friendship. I suspect there are some themes that we'll be seeing throughout this series. Uh, next week, we, we jump forward in time about 75 years to discuss the friendship of President Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. Did they have a bit of a complicated friendship that parallels Jefferson and Adams? Yes, Allie, they also had the same sort of complicated uh, relationship and friendship. They started off as close friends. They became rivals. But then again, towards, towards the end of uh, Roosevelt's life, we'll see that they reconciled. It's a fascinating story. There are definitely echoes of the um, Adams-Jefferson relationship in the Taft and uh, TR story. And I can't wait to talk with you about that in, in the next episode of this series. Yes, and I can't wait to learn more about uh, Presidents Roosevelt and Taft next week in our second installment of the President's Club. Thank you for listening to the Nixon Now podcast. Our guest today is Bob Bostock. On behalf of the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Allie Fitzgerald-Smith. 
We are broadcasting from the Charlie Zhang Studio at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. Please subscribe to the podcast and tune in next week for another episode. <laughs>